Hello, dear listeners. May peace be with you. Welcome to Raising Neurodiverse Somali Children, the podcast hosted by yours truly, Sirad Shirdan. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Raising Neurodiverse Somali Children. I'm your host, Sirad. Thank you so much for being with us. I wanted to today introduce you to my wonderful dear friend, Ayan, Ayan Musa. Ayan is the mother of two precious daughters with autism. Ayan, remind me how we first met. Ayan and I go back. We've, we've known each other for a couple of years. We met at an event at Brian Coyle Center. And after the event, we ended up chatting and we had so much in common. We, inter- we exchanged phone numbers. And, you know, the rest, as they say, is history. Yeah, I think we, we were not sure whether it was 2016 or 17, but I remember I had just recently arrived in Minnesota. Ayan had arrived from Texas. She'll tell you her story in, in, a, in a little bit. And I had just recently arrived from Ohio. And I remember I was trying to make connections in the community. I didn't know anyone. <laughs> and, I, and I remember approaching Ayan and our mutual friend Zainab and saying, hey, you know, I'm a speech therapist. I'm, I'm new here. And Ayan and Zainab were both so incredibly friendly and really just kind of took me by the hand. And I just kind of became a part of the clan. So Ayan is such an amazing human being. She is an advocate. She's an activist. She has helped so many parents in Minnesota who have children with autism from the Somali community, from the Ethiopian community, and also from the mainstream community. She's helped families navigate the very complex special education system, the very complex system of county, you know, disability services, and so much more. She's a community connector, and she's somebody that I love so dearly. So I'm really grateful that I get to interview you, Ayan. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for the warm, warm introduction. I feel like you, you definitely have so much love in how you introduce people. <laughs> I'm, I'm blushing. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I just, yeah, I just, I, I really, yeah, I, I really sincerely do love you. And you're somebody who... I've learned so much about autism from you, from your beautiful girls. And I'm just so grateful that, you know, Allah guided us to one another all of those years ago. And yeah, I'm just so grateful to call you a dear friend. So thank you. Thank you for your presence in my life. Thank you for yours as well. You have, Sarad, I will say, I think it's my turn to embarrass her a little bit is my dear, dear friend that has really seen me through thick and thin. We've been through the lowest lows and the highest highs together. And she has opened so many doors for me to serve on advisory committees to just advocate. She has led the way. She has encouraged us every step of the way to be present. To She has shared resources with us day and night. She's been through all our woes with our children and school system and disability services, and really has been the person that has gone to the higher ups and saying to them, I am connected to parents. These parents are saying X, Y, and Z. I think you should listen to them. And they have been very receptive to her 
and in turn receptive to us. So we thank you from the bottom of our hearts. I speak for all parents when I say this. We truly love you no, and thank no, you. Now I'm blushing. Oh my gosh. Ayan <laughs> and I have a history of sharing public platforms and making each other blush. <laughs> so I thank you, Ayan. That your words mean a lot to me. I feel like it's my obligation, you know, to help. So I'm so grateful to have spent the last couple of years with you and. I'm excited about continuing to work with you in helping Somali autism families. So on that note, I wanted to begin by, as I mentioned before, Ayan has two beautiful daughters who I have the honor of knowing who have a diagnosis of autism. And I wanted you to share with the listeners their stories, if you will. Sure. Our story, like many Somali families, began with confusion. I knew something was wrong with my children, but I couldn't quite point it out. I figured it out, or I could pinpoint to certain issues, but a lot of times I, from the family members that I shared certain issues with, I it was dismissed, so I thought maybe I was imagining things. A lot of times I was told I was a first-time mother, and I was stressed out, and children can be delayed, and you know, reaching certain milestones and I shouldn't make a big deal out of it. But it kept nagging at me when I looked at other children talking, doing things for themselves at such young ages, I was confused. It didn't add up. So I started Googling symptoms. And when I did, I was really just trying to look for the different milestones that children reach at what age. And a lot of it pointed to delays. And this word autism kept coming up, a word I never heard of before. Again, when I shared it with my family, they said, no, you know, you really should not busy your mind with such things. So, you know, we've known children that talked at age 10 and, you know, at least some of the physical milestones were, well, not all their mild, physical milestones they were reaching. So that, that was enough to fool people, I think, into thinking they're fine. They just have certain delays. I shared it with their father at the time about my worries. He also dismissed it, except for one day he said, let's talk about the elephant in the room. When he said, we think something is wrong, I, you know, but he was still somewhat in denial. But that one day, at least he acknowledged that something must be wrong. I relied heavily on my father, who was a teacher, who also studied, you know, early childhood education to guide me. And I called him and I said, I think something is wrong with my children. They're not talking on time. They're crying all the time. Something is wrong. One was super quiet, one was crying. So he came and he saw them and he said, oh, something is wrong. We have to take them to see a specialist. And that was when their father, who was working for children at the time, agreed to make an appointment for them. And we saw a specialist that was four months out and they diagnosed the children with autism. At this point, I, I had an idea that that's what, that's what it was. That's what we were dealing with. But the day that I got the diagnosis was a day that I had huge sense of relief because now it's, it was a confirmation. I had something that I could go after, that I could you know, seek services, seek help. I didn't know what I was looking for, but I knew that I could start looking for help under this diagnosis. A friend of mine told me about 
early childhood education and special education. And I enrolled Layla, who was three years old at the time, into that school. They accepted her. I mean, it was too young. My younger child, who's 13 now, Layla's 15 now. So I enrolled her in ABA. And I actually enrolled Layla in ABA as well after school. That was very, very helpful for us. Then it went after, you know, that I, after that, I started looking for support groups and people to reach out to other parents. I thought, you know, I'm not the only one. I can't be the only one going through this. I have to start looking for other parents and see what they're saying. And at the time, there were Yahoo groups online. So I started searching those and Facebook and I discovered different groups. I also discovered a very important, what would later become a very important part of my life, a support group in person. That was an Ethiopian group nearby. And I had met a mother outside in a parking lot at an ABA center who was an Ethiopian mother. And we started up a conversation and she told me that they have a support group. And I called right away that very same day. And I connected with the leader of that group and who was very instrumental in guiding me to the right school district and became my mentor. She really, truly lifted me through all kinds of problems and opened all kinds of doors for education, for activism, for advocacy. And this became my home now where I would learn and also try to help others it became a therapy for me because I finally found people that I could relate to that were talking about the same problems and saying, you know, looking for solutions as well. Needless to say, I think my world became a little bit smaller, but at least my children's world became a little bit bigger. The way I look at it is, you know, the world is a very small, small place for our children. It's like the hole in the needle and it can just be very confining. and and accommodating, especially back then. Autism awareness is growing by the day and we see improvements now. But there was a time that sensory accommodations were not there at the malls for children and we couldn't go really to many places that were indoors other than the mall and a few other places. Those places are changing now and they're accommodating children that have certain sensory needs. At this point, I feel like I'm rambling a little bit, so you might want to stop me. (laughs) No, thank you so much. You know, I think your story is going to resonate with parents for so many reasons. So you get connected with this Ethiopian mom who you mentioned was really instrumental and she connected you to a parent support group. And then at some point, you make the decision to move to Minnesota. Can you speak about your reasons for moving to Minnesota and what that transition was like? Sure. It was not an easy decision. At first, I moved from a house that I had. We sold it because it was not in a good school district. We moved to a better school district. But then we started facing all kinds of issues with insurance, covering ABA covering speech, covering OT, you know, they kept saying if this was not a physical injury, they would not cover it or would first have to pay and then they would pay a portion of it. So it became very expensive to find help for my children. And when I researched what states were better for for children and services, Minnesota kept coming up and a lot of Somalis live out here. And then I happened upon a few articles about the number of children 
that were staggeringly high that had autism that were Somali and how this community was fighting to, you know, for, for services and how they were making their voices heard that something was wrong. And I thought, this is very interesting. This looks like a progressive state that's listening to people when they are frustrated. They allow them to be heard. Whereas in Texas, even if you were talking all day, maybe, I mean, we, we made some headway in some areas, but it was painstakingly slow. Waivers, for instance, were 11 to 14 years long waitlist. Whereas in here, in Minnesota, at the time, it was a two-year wait list. And I thought, I can't wait for my children to age in the system just waiting. So I made the decision to move to Minnesota. And as luck would have it, as soon as we moved here, the governor signed into law that there would be no waiting list for waivers. So it was immediate. And that's also activism of the parents that just don't stop. They are diligent, they are organized, they are passionate, and really through all their struggles, they tend to make time for advocacy and activism. And the state listens eventually. Thank you so much, Ayad. We got so into our conversation that I realized that I forgot to ask you to introduce your precious daughters. So would you be able to do that for us? Sure. I have two daughters, Amina and Layla. Layla is my 15-year-old and Amina is my 13-year-old daughter. Layla is what is considered a level one on the autism spectrum. By that, she it means she has no speech impediments, speech delays. She did used to have it, but she does not anymore. She Looks like a typical teenager, does you can hardly tell, but she has some anxiety that she deals with that is getting better by the day. And also the way her autism expresses itself is she's very honest, very blank in her statements. If for instance you don't look good in a certain outfit, she's not gonna lie to you and tell you you look great in it. She's gonna tell you you don't look great. <laughs> so things like that, but What's music to my ears is she's having, you know, the normal teenage problems, attitude issues, as well as the progress that comes with that. What many people don't know is that, for instance, children lying or making things up is such a normal thing. But for parents that have children with autism, we wait for the day that they would lie to us because it is so uncharacteristic of them to, you know make things up in their imagination, to lie about a certain thing. So she's getting there. She's becoming a regular teenager. She's into fashion. She's into all the things that her children her age are, which is we're, something we're very grateful for. And then I have my 13-year-old who is considered a level three. By that, it means that she is nonverbal and her autism is much more severe. She has a lot of sensory issues. She's not able to do a number of things for herself that children her age are able to do for themselves, like dressing themselves and eating properly, things like that. She's able to do to a certain extent, but not as well as her age mates. 
but she is someone who lights up our world. She is, her smile truly touches everyone. Her eyes are just soulful and old. Her nonverbal language is amazing. It's very expressive. She's very playful and just very affectionate child that you just can't help but love her. Thank you so much for that. I can attest to what you've said about both of them. I know both of them. I haven't seen them since I moved recently to Washington, but I love them both so much. And what you said about both of them is spot on. (laughs) I really miss Leila's spunk and her sass and her no-nonsense kind of way. And I miss Amina's sweetness and kindness and her hugs. I miss Amina's hugs. Yeah, I can't wait to one day be reunited with both of them. I really love them so much. You're very welcome. So talk to me about the joys of parenting children with autism. Oh, there are many. Despite the struggles, there are many. They're so honest, so pure. They are just the sweetest children that you could think of. No malice. They really just light up your day with their unique way of looking at things. And by the way, there is a word for autism in Somali now, and it's called mangar. And the reason I bring it up is because it translates to, in English, unique mind. And truly, they have a unique mind. They are so unique in their outlook of life and their just their no-nonsense, you know, straight shooters. <laughs> and they, they just hug you and they're so sweet that they're vulnerable. You just want to protect them forever. So I, I can't express enough how sweet they are. They're just so lovely and pure. And the joy of it is that you know that certain aspects of how they are is a forever way of them being. And the sweetest parts of them are truly the parts that stay forever. It's also the part that makes them vulnerable. So you worry and you want to protect them and you want to teach them. And they learn. They learn. Thank you for that. I learned about Mangar. A couple of months ago, because I saw an article that I think was originally posted in Sahan Journal, and they interviewed Anissa Hachi, who herself, I believe, is a mom. I believe Anissa has two Mm -hmm. children, and I think it was like a community effort. I don't know if you were involved in that, but people were kind of bouncing around ideas, and mangar was the term that stuck, and I think it's... It's such an important development because I think one of the challenges has been that there is no Somali mm-hmm. word for autism. So Somali parents, you know, encountered this diagnosis. Many of them said that they had never heard of autism in Somalia. And of course, without a word, language is very powerful in any culture, but especially in the Somali culture. And without a word, I think a lot of parents really struggle to connect with this new diagnosis. Mm-hmm. So I think Mangat is such a wonderful development and I'm really grateful for the efforts of all of the people who came together to kind of make that happen. I really hope it sticks. I hope so too. It's such a beautiful, beautiful way of defining autism. It's often we had negative explanations of what autism is, but this is such a beautiful definition that I I do hope it sticks as well. I do too. Related to that, I wanted you to speak about what what it's been like parenting 
to autistic children in the Somali community? What have your experiences been like? Hmm. Where do I begin? <laughs> I'm known as the mother with the two sick children. <laughs> that's the that's the definition. You know, the one with the sick children. That's my entire definition of who I am as a human being to them. But often it is with a sense of pity and, you know, understanding as to, especially from the mothers, they are, you know, they are pitying me, not in a negative way, sometimes in a negative way, to be honest. But I just take it as a positive thing. I choose to look at it positively that they are expressing pity in a positive way. It has also been extremely positive, I have to say. When I tell especially parents that have children with autism that I myself also have children with autism, there is such a camaraderie that I can't quite express. It is immediate and they automatically gravitate towards me and ask me questions and what have you done? What what has your journey been like? What should I do? This is what I'm going through. Some of them have enlightened me, have educated me. Others have sought advice and information from me. And the camaraderie is such a sisterhood for the most, most, and I say sisterhood because mostly they're mothers. There have been a few fathers here and there that have become brothers to me that I can't equate any other friendship to it. They truly, you know, you share in the sorrow. They understand you. The closest that I would say a friendship comes to equating to that would be to yours, Sarat, who understands truly in a very unique way what we go through. You've been there from day one going through our support groups and hearing us and talking to us and truly understanding us. For someone who is also not raising a child with autism, it is mind-blowing to me that you would experience, you know, our emotions with us. So in that way, it's been very, very positive. It It is, even though they will say, you know, do you know Ayan, the one with the two children that are sick? <laughs> By that, what they mean is, do you know Ayan, the one that has the two children that have mangar? I've come to be known in a couple of circles around the city, and I have welcomed them, and they have welcomed me. So it has been a, a, a truly unique experience. Thank you so much for that, and thank you again. <laughs> I'm I'm blushing for the kind words that you were too kind. Jan and I arrived in Minnesota in 2015. And I remember in 2015, there were a lot of like autism awareness kind of events beginning. But we still knew, even I mean, in 2016, we still knew a lot of families who were in hiding because there was a stigma around disability, around autism. And I left in 2021. And by the time that I was leaving, there was just so much more awareness and openness related to Mangar in the Somali community. And yeah, sure, even today in 2022, I'm sure there are a lot of families who 
are crippled with fear in seeking out services for their child who are in fear of what other community members, family members will say. But I think a lot of progress has been made in kind of removing the stigma from from autism in Minnesota. I would, would definitely you agree, with that? agree with that. I think there was a lot of secrecy around, you know, autism. A lot of parents really quietly sought out services and help, talked to us quietly. And it was unspoken that we would not speak about them if they did not wish to be known. There was so much stigma when we first came in 2015. And a lot of work has gone on to addressing that. Mosques have addressed this. Universities have addressed this. Social services, you name it. And everybody has taken on this charge of saying, you know, come out of the woodworks and don't be ashamed. This isn't something that's your fault. That That is something that very, very, very strongly had to be addressed to tell the mothers, especially, that it was not their fault because a lot of them had that weight on them of feeling like it was their fault or feeling like they couldn't seek out other parents because other people would know about them. There is actually a Snapchat group called Me and My Corner that talk, that does a short film about a parent who hides his child and some other neighbor found out about it and he's telling him, you know, don't hide what God gave you and so on. So in Somali it's called Wadi Galin, which is in English translates to loosely. I know I just have it at the tip of my tongue, but basically advising the other parent to be better, to not be ashamed and to to come out of the hiding that they've been in that it's not healthy, it's not healthy for the child, it's not healthy for the parent. And parents have listened to that. They have really listened to it. So we have a lot more parents now that are out there that are advocating and want to be heard and are coming forward with their problems. Thank you, Ayan. Can you speak about the efforts of mosques to become inclusive of children with autism. I know that a couple of years ago you were involved with a special needs Quranic school. Can you speak briefly about that? Sure. I was asked to be on a panel at my local mosque to talk about what raising children with autism was like and what things we do to take care of our children. And at the end of that meeting, a couple of parents and myself asked the mosque for a room where we could teach children Quran, have a Sunday school, essentially. And the mosque was very receptive. One of the things that we said during the meeting was, mosques are not friendly places for children with autism and their families. And we need this to change. And they heard us and they allowed us to have a room. And we had a wonderful parent that was willing to be a teacher and parents that were willing to be volunteers and other community members that were willing to be volunteers. And a Sunday school was created, Sunday Duxi. Mosques, the Somali mosques have been trained. The imams have been trained in mental health issues. They have really taken on this responsibility on themselves the state has heavily pressed them to be trained and address mental health issues in their communities. 
um, that was the first step. And then autism came second. And they have really addressed this with many families. They have had a few gatherings about autism. They have lent their spaces for Autism Awareness Month and have hosted families and professionals that want to talk about autism and awareness. So they have been involved in Minnesota, and I am so proud of them because it is the mosques that make a difference, a big difference in the community that we live in. And for them to embrace families and, you know, understand what families are going through is the first big step. Yeah, thank you for that. And as you know, I did my dissertation looking at the experiences of Somali autistic children. And one of the one of the things that a couple of the parents said was that we don't feel welcome when our children are, you know, in the mosque. So they tend to, they spoke about tending to kind of self-isolate and stay home. And I think that was really unfortunate. I think we definitely have made a lot of strides in inclusion, but I still think that we have, there's still mm-hmm. a distance to go <laughs> before, you know, before children with autism in our community feel completely welcome in all aspects of our you know community life. But yeah, I think it's such a great step and it was so wonderful Years ago, I think this was 2017, to kind of sit in on, you know, the sessions. And, you know, one of the fathers who was the Quran teacher actually had, I believe, mm-hmm. two children who had autism. And it was amazing because he not only knew the Quran and was able to teach it, but he understood how to work with children mm-hmm. who had sensory issues. And just the way that he would use kind of deep pressure and hold the child while he was you know, reciting the Quran and just seeing the child repeating the Quran, but also kind of calming down and being able to regulate Mm -hmm. was just really amazing. So uh, thank you for that. Now I want to ask you about the challenges of parenting children with autism. We've spoken about the joys, but now I want to transition to the difficulties, if you will. The difficulties are many. There are there are definitely many. There's a lot of fear of our children getting older because a lot of services are not available to our children in adulthood. Before they reach adulthood, a lot of the services tend to dwindle down. And we have children that are teenagers that still want to go to the park and play in the toddler area, for instance. And we don't have a lot of accommodation for that. People tend to look at us and wonder what we're doing. Although there is more awareness now, it's still not a very comfortable space to be in. There is a lot of worry as to what would happen to our children in adulthood, what would happen to them when we pass away. A lot of, you know, services that serve people that have autism in adulthood are muddied right now. It's just a muck, if if I can be so blunt as to say. It is not a clear path. Transition is difficult. There's a shortage of workers. You know, you hear reports of abuse in special needs homes. You worry about aging and what it means to place your child in a home or keeping them with you forever to the best of your ability. 
And even then, finding workers to come into the home to help you is very difficult. It's just a very narrow world that they live in. The world is really not equipped for them. It's, it's an ableistic world. And it is like that hole in the needle that we were talking about. That's, you know, as a parent, we don't have a lot of free time. Our children are not able to be left on their own. We can't just go to the store. We can't just walk into a store with them. We have to worry about them grabbing things or having a meltdown, sensory issues. We have to worry about them being you know, uncomfortable doing a lot of things that a lot of other people their age do. They are not able to have, and I'm talking about level three here, you know, some level two. They don't have a lot of friends. That's very worrisome. It's very sad to think of their circle being so small. It's really, their circle consists of family and teachers and the aides that help them. It doesn't consist of a lot of socializing, which is very important to the human being. So we have a lot of worries. That's that's the biggest challenge. We have many, 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 many worries. Thank you for that, Ayan. I wondered if you could speak about, and here I'm speaking, thinking about Amina and the concerns that you have about Amina in her special education settings, given that she's nonverbal, can you speak to that? Yeah, as a mother, I worry a lot about what it's what it's like for her outside of the home. Do they understand her? Can they predict what she wants? Can they do they treat her well when I'm not there? And I can't know because I'm not allowed to be in the school. It's a HIPAA violation or something. Not a HIPAA violation, but the private violation of the privacy of the other students. And it is so worrisome as a mother to, to think of her being with strangers all day that may or may not treat her very well. I don't know. When I talk to them, they seem to be treating her very well. They seem to understand her very well, but I'm not sure. I can't complain this year because the school has been very good to her. She's picked up on so many different skills and she's not crying as often. There was a time that she used to cry a lot and I had to pick her up from school all the time. But this year she's she hasn't this past year she has not done that. So I'm inclined to think that she has she's having a better time in school. But it's nerve-wracking to send your child off that cannot tell you what happened today. Thank you for that, Ayan. We've spoken about services for children. I want us to now transition to a discussion about supports for parents. I think you and I have, in the work that we've done, we've noticed a lot of parents with mental health issues. And of course, if you're a parent who yourself you know, is dealing with significant mental health kind of struggles, it is going to impact your ability to support your child and to access the resources in the community. So I wanted to ask you about what supports exist out there for parents and what can be done to support parents who have kind of mental health struggles and other struggles, whether it be financial struggles, those may be. That's a very good question. It is a question of the hour, truly. The state is waking up to the fact that we have parents that are so stressed out that they are doing very poorly. 
There are in Minnesota, there are a lot of healthcare services, mental health services. How one seeks them is another story. The, this is another awareness that we have to now take on to advocate for that parents that are not doing well cannot possibly do well for their children. And it's prevalent. Mental health issues are very prevalent in our community. And the state is doing the best it can right now to address it. But I don't think that that has picked up as much momentum yet. It's starting to. The state provides a lot of services. They provide arms for adults. They provide CTSS for children. They provide psychotherapy. As you know, there is something called medical assistance in Minnesota that is income-based, so everybody is insured, regardless of income. So from that aspect, the state has done its job in, in ensuring that services are available to people and culturally competent services are available to people. We just now have to do the work in raising awareness from a personal experience, I myself went through something called clinical depression, and I can testify now that I was such an absentee mother for two years. I had such a difficult time. If the children's father had not stepped in and taken over as he did, I don't know that my children would have been okay. He really stepped in and took care of them physically and did what he had to do while I gathered myself and sought help and medications. I just crashed mentally, and I know this happens to other parents, and after having gone through it, I honestly cannot tell you what it must be like to not seek services. I sought help only because my family insisted on me seeking help, not because I had the better judgment to seek help. And if others do not have family members or friends that push them to seek help, I don't know that they would. So this is an issue that really has to be taken on and, you know, heavily advocated for. Thank you for sharing that very personal and kind of struggle with the listeners. I'm very happy. I'm very happy that you're doing okay now. How are you today? I am doing so much better. Medications really are wonderful. Psychotherapy is wonderful. I'm learning a lot about myself I'm learning to take breaks and self-care, making sure that self-care is present in my life and that I'm a better parent to my children because of it. So I continue with my therapies and medications. I know how much they're helping me. And I share this openly with everyone because I want them to know that it's not the end if you feel depressed. It is a clinical situation um, that can be helped, you know, by professionals. Thank you for that, Ayan. And I think my follow-up question is, there is a stigma around seeking out mental health assistance in mm -hmm. our community. <laughs> We've spoken about the stigma around autism but there is, as a culture, our culture is, I think, one that is very comfortable with suffering. It, it, you know, I, I might not be saying that correctly. And sometimes, yeah, seeking out therapy is seen as weakness, unfortunately, in some kind of corners of our community. And I wanted to ask you, 
if there is indeed somebody who knows of a mom with autism or, or anyone really who is underwater, who is showing signs of depression or another kind of psychiatric issue is really, really struggling to cope, what would be a culturally responsive, I really want to emphasize that piece, way of connecting that parent, connecting that person with support? I know many parents, mothers that are underwater right now. It's very difficult. I tend to share my experiences and tell them, this is what it looks like to be underwater. You're showing signs of where I was and worse sometimes. Sometimes I feel like the culturally appropriate way to say it, which I find very difficult to articulate, is to say, you know, Naya, wali bat do that. You're going to go crazy if you don't get some help. <laughs> Can you translate that? You translated a part of that, but I wonder. <laughs> oh, dear. What would be Sometimes the literal translation that? Of is that is what it takes to say, look, yeah. you're going to go crazy if you don't get some help. Yeah. And they respond to that sometimes. They just, that's the result they need. Wow. I, I yeah. know, and it, and, and it has to come from another mother. It has to come from not a professional. This is where the professionals struggle is they don't know how to bridge the gap. It has yeah. to come from another parent that says to them, look, I've been where you are. You're about to go crazy. You have to get some help. This stuff does not get better, you know, and say it in a way that they understand. And, and it made you laugh because in Somali, it's true. It's very funny. It's to say, you know, it's like saying, you know, girl, you're about to go crazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's exactly yes. what that means. This does not look good. This is not going to get any better. And it's that camaraderie that helps them understand. And we have a group where we talk about this often, depression. I talk about it. Some days I wake up happy. Some days I wake up sad. Some days my house is in disarray. These are all signs of just depression, you know. And now more and more of them are coming out of the woodwork and saying, look, I'm depressed too. I have not been able to clean my house for a week. I find these tasks, tasks very difficult. So we really, as parents, have to advocate very heavily for mental health services and mental health awareness and, you know, for them to seek help. Thank you, Ayan. If you could go back in time to yourself, a mother of two newly diagnosed children with autism, what advice would you give your younger self? Oh, I would tell myself not to worry as much. There's no magic wand. I cried a lot. And, you know, a friend of mine gave me this best advice. She said, cry in the bathroom and smile in the living room. I would cry less. I'd spend less time in the bathroom crying. Because when our children, the reason she said that is because when our children with autism see us crying, they don't know what to do with us. They don't know how to comfort us. It's very distressing. Yeah, I would tell myself to worry less that this race is a marathon and not a sprint. And it's, it's a road with many difficulties, but also many joys. Thank you, Ayan. What tips do you have 
for parents, other parents who are listening today who have children with autism? Stay connected to other parents a thousand percent. I cannot stress that enough. I think that other parents are magic. If there was to be a magic wand, it's them. <laughs> you have to learn to not isolate. Isolation is an enemy. It really makes you see and believe things that are not there. It makes life much more difficult. Other parents are medicine. They really, they, they connect you with professionals. They connect you with resources. They connect you with navigation, you know, systems and tips and, you know, tricks. So I would say connect, stay connected, have a community and teach others because when you, the best way to learn is to teach, teach what you know. And I would add for people who live in places where there isn't a physical community of other parents who have autism or children who have autism, seek out a virtual community. I know Ayan has spoken about Yahoo groups. Ayan is a, you're, you're really well connected with the Facebook kind of autism groups, but find your virtual tribe. If you do live in a community where there just aren't a lot of other parents who have children with Absolutely. autism. Facebook has been our saving grace. It has really connected us virtually with all kinds of groups across the country, across the globe, and resources and doctors and research papers, and it, you name it, it has been amazing. What tips do you have for professionals who work with autistic children? Be like Sarad. <laughs> he likes it honestly come come and join us we're not monsters we love to have professionals in our midst this is a very important part of your profession to be part of us to understand what we're going through to hear us talking informally not just when we need something from you but it really helps your professional world a lot we are allies in this, you know, we're partners in everything that you are doing. So be part of us. Come and be part of us. That's the tip that I have for them. Thank you, Ayan, again, for your kind words. I don't feel deserving of them. What are your dreams for your children? Oh, I have many dreams for my children. That they be in university, that they graduate, that they get married and have children of their own, that they have, a, you know, a healthy, thriving social circle of their own. My dreams for them are endless, to be honest. <laughs> I have so many, many, many dreams for them. And I'm hoping that some of those truly come true. I hope so, too. I'll be praying for that. They're such beautiful girls, and they deserve the most beautiful future ever. So, and I have no doubt that Amina and Leila will be able to achieve their dreams. I think we as a society still need to work on making sure that we're making that mm -hmm. hole in the needle <laughs> larger. So children like Leila and Amina have the space and the accommodations to be able to achieve 
you know, their wildest dreams. So Thank I'm you. really hopeful Thank you. for a beautiful future. You're very welcome. Do you have any last words as we begin to wrap up that you would like to say about your daughters or your experience or anything that you would like to leave our listeners with today? Advocacy, advocacy, advocacy. It is the bread and butter of everything that we do. It is the cornerstone. It is what keeps us, it's the glue that keeps us together. It's, it's, it is the way forward. Without it, we would, we would be drowning and a lot is lost. Without voices being heard from parents, from caregivers, from professionals, a lot is lost when there is no advocacy. So I would say advocate, please, please and please don't be complacent. Let your voice be heard and let, you know, give a voice to others. Those are such beautiful words to conclude with. Ayan, thank you so much for your time today, for your sage advice, for our listeners, for parents of autistic children, for professionals who work with autistic children. I feel incredibly grateful and privileged to know you. I myself have learned so much from you and your daughters. And I hope that the listeners too will be able to learn from you as well. But thank you so much for your time. I deeply, deeply appreciate your time. I likewise have learned a lot from you. And I'm so, so, so grateful that you have come into my life and have brightened it every single day. So thank you. May Allah bless you. I mean, thank you so much. And you too. Thank you so much, everyone, for tuning in. Yeah, this has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you again, Ayan. Thank you so much for tuning into Raising Neurodiverse Somali Children, the podcast. For more information, please visit my Linktree page at Linktree slash Sakina Children's. That is S-A-K-I-N-A-C-H-I-L-D-R-E-N-S. Until next time, I wish you peace, light, and much joy.